Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, so if you grab Bible and turn to Psalm 33, right in the middle of your Bibles. If you don't have one with you, there should be one in a chair in front of you. Psalm 33. Now, many of the psalms that we've seen so far up to this point, as we've been preaching through the psalms, right, starting in Psalm 1 uh, throughout the summers, many of them we've seen up to this point have dealt with some really difficult and hard things. Uh, they've addressed things like uh, interacting or dealing with evil and wicked men, calling out to God for help and desperation, lamenting over the circumstances of life, and that's all real and, and good. Psalm 2, here's a few examples. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Psalm 3, many are rising against me. Psalm 6, I'm weary in my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. Psalm 10, why, O oh Lord, do you hide yourself in times of trouble? For, uh, Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 22, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 28, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. And so we've seen this over and over again throughout the Psalms uh, so far up to this point. But now in Psalm 33, we have a different tone. Right? There's a different tone. Psalm 33 is, is joyful. It's worshipful. It's upbeat. There's celebration and energy coming with Psalm 33. It's filled with praise to God for who he is and what he does, what he is like. And so again, remember that the Psalms are songs, right? They're to be sung. And so many of them up to this point were probably more of a, a low tone, minor key, contemplative of the things of life and the things of this world. But I imagine that Psalm 33 would be sung very upbeat and lively, like Shout for joy, that we just sang, right? It would have a lot of enthusiasm. Instead of lifting your hands, pleading for God's mercy, you lift your hands and praise to God for who he is and what he has done. Get your body moving. Gets David dancing, right? That David, right? Increases your heart rate, right? Gets you going. Now, as you look at Psalm 33, you'll notice that there isn't a title or heading, Right? So your editor, the editors of your Bible, whatever version you have, may have given it something, may have titled it somehow, but that isn't part of what was written in the Scriptures. Most of the Psalms, as you page through, most of them have a, a heading of some kind like this, but this one does not. One reason why this might be is that it's very possible that Psalm 33 originally was a continuation from Psalm 32. Right? So in Psalm 32, we read of sin and confession, and God forgiving. And then Psalm 33 is rejoicing in this salvation, rejoicing that God alone saves. Right? If you look back at chapter 32 and verse 11, look at the language here. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now look at verse 1 of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, 
O you righteous, praise befits the upright. So we have very similar language in those two verses, right? But we don't want to presume too much on what we don't know for sure. And so as it comes to us as a separate psalm in our Bibles that God has given us and inspired, we'll approach it in that way today. So let's pray, then we'll read through the psalm and go from there. Father God, please help us now as we open your word and as we dig into it. Please give us understanding, and by your Spirit, help us to apply it to our lives, that we might be a changed people, that we might be more worshipful and living more to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 33. Let's read through the whole thing. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So here we are rejoicing over God's salvation. So the first thing we see here is the worship of God. The worship of God. So we're considering here corporate worship in verses 1 through 3, right? Corporate worship. Again, we tend to read our Bibles very uh, individualistically, with an individualistic mindset. This is about me, right? Just me. How does this apply to me? And yet we would do well to give ourselves to reading the Scriptures more corporately, right? About us, about God's people, And so this is one of those places. Remember that the Psalms were songs given for congregational singing, right? For group singing, not individualistically. And so then as we considered in our time of confession, this Psalm is written for the righteous, for the upright, for God's people. This is who this Psalm is for, for those who are spiritually positioned in Christ. And so corporately we are together in Christ. 
And so then in the first three verses, in the corporate worship of God, we see six commands given here, right? Look what we see. We see shout, praise, give thanks, make melody, sing, and play instruments, right? So here are the commands that God gives for corporate worship. Worship like this is not optional for God's people, right? We should be engaged in this. We are called to worship God, right? Every service we start with a call to worship. God calls us to worship and he gives us a little bit of what it should be like or what it should entail. Now this description is only partial, right? It's only part of worship. This is only one psalm out of 150, right? So as we talked about in the psalms previous to this, there are other types of singing, other types of worship, other types of seeking after God. But this is one type, and it's important. We should be lifting our voices with energy, praising God for who he is and all that he has done. So as we look at these verses here, the first word we read is shout. Right? Shout. Our praise should be loud because God is worthy. Right? We've talked about that multiple times. But we do have to be careful here right? Our worship is not to be chaotic, right? It's not to be chaotic. It is to be enthusiastic. There's a difference there. And so we have to be careful with that. We don't want people just hooting and hollering for no reason all over the place, right? That would be chaos. We don't want that. And yet we want to be energetic, enthusiastic, loud in our worship. You'll notice here that the shouting, the enthusiasm, it has a purpose. There's a reason for it, right? What is that reason? Shout for joy, right? We as God's people should be filled with joy. We should be a joyful people, a happy people, because we know our great God. And we have found salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. So the shouting is not to draw attention to yourself, right? That means you have to check your heart in it. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? Do I have purity of heart? Right? We're talking again about corporate worship with others, with the people of God. And so it's not just about you or you drawing attention to yourself. What's beneficial for the whole, for the congregation? So there is motive. We are to shout for joy. And where is that joy found? Shout for joy in the Lord, right? Our joy is in the Lord. Jesus Christ and his salvation is our motive, right? It's our reason for shouting and for singing loudly, right? It's because of Christ and all that he's done. We see this, again, as a theme throughout the Psalms. So here's a question for you this morning. Do you have joy? Do you have joy? Another one of the questions the kids asked in the bulletin last week was this. It was, how can I be more joyful? How can I be more joyful? Well, if we take a quick survey through the Psalms, I found three areas where joy is found. First, there's joy in God's presence. All right, Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 43.4, I will go to God my exceeding joy. God is our source of joy in his presence. Second, there's joy in God's blessing, in his working, in his actions. 
Psalm 92, 4, the works of your hands I sing for joy. Psalm 107, 22, let them tell of the deeds in songs of joy. Right? So there's joy in seeing the blessing of God. And third, there's joy in God's salvation. Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 20, verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. So the question, how can I be more joyful? Well, seek to know God. Seek to know him. Look for him, to experience him working in your life. Meditate on the the gospel of your salvation. Put it in your mind, put it in your heart, and dwell it into your life that you may know it and stand on it and shout for joy in the Lord because of his great salvation. So also here in this corporate worship, we read of various instruments, right? God calls his people to include the playing of instruments in our corporate worship, right? So this is the first time in the Psalms, starting with Psalm 1, coming through, this is the first time we see specific instruments that are listed, right? So here we see the lyre, the harp of ten strings, and stringed instruments. But as you continue throughout the Psalms, you see many more instruments that are listed, right? In Psalm 150, for instance, Short psalm, last one. We read of these instruments, trumpet, lute, harp, tambourine, strings, pipe, and loud crashing cymbals. Right? Just in that one psalm. So you thought Joe played loud before? Wait till you get to the closing song. Right? Right? So we're to incorporate instruments of various kinds. Right? We're also to... Sing a new song, a new song. We are created in the image of God, and he's gifted us with creativity. And one of, those, one of the ways for that creativity to be put into play is through developing new songs, new sounds, new phrasing, right? We should have newness in our expression of God's graces as we experience God and go through life with our God. Right? Now, some of you don't like new songs, right? I like the old stuff. Well, let me give you a couple things to think about. Number one, the old stuff was new at one time. Right? So consider that. And second, I hate to disappoint you, but in the book of Revelation, we read about new songs being sung in heaven. So you might as well get used to it. So, all right. Next thing we see here is an orderliness in worship. Orderliness. Remember, corporate worship is not to be chaotic. It's not all over the place. It's orderly, right? How do I get that? Well, there needs to be melody, right? There's to be pleasant sound, right? It's not hard to listen to. It's not hard to engage with. It's not hard to sing along with, right? We also see here that it's to be done skillfully, played skillfully on the instruments, right? We want skill. We don't want just anybody up here leading. We want people who have some skill, right? Don't you want that? You want some people with some skill leading you in worship. Now, they don't have to be perfect, but they need some skill, right? Now, skillfully, a separate point of application here. Your best skills should be offered to the Lord in worship. Okay, that's for all of you, not just musicians, right? Your best skills should be offered to the Lord in worship. It might be music, or it might be writing, or it might be building things, or it might be sewing, or it might be 
counseling and encouraging others. Whatever your best skills are, they should be given, offered up to the Lord in worship. The church needs your God-given skills. That's why he's given them to you, right? So use them for God's glory. One more note here before we move on. Our worship must be genuine, right? It's got to be real. It's not, it shouldn't be fake. It shouldn't be a performance. It shouldn't be trying to impress other people around. We need purity of heart, motive. Our motive should be pure as we come to corporate worship, right? Does it take effort, thoughtfulness, and planning? Sure, it does. Yeah, that's part of the skill and the orderliness, right? But it must be genuine. Why? Because we know that God alone saves, right? Because we know that he is our sovereign Lord. As we'll see throughout this psalm, we know that he is worthy of that. He's worthy of our purity of heart. He's worthy of our skill given to him in worship. So how are we doing here at Pine Grove? Well, are we loud? All right. Are we joyful? Do we have a variety of instruments? Do we sing new songs? Are we enthusiastic? All right. Overall, my opinion, I think we're doing pretty well. But let's keep at it. Let's keep it up. Let's keep growing and learning. Okay, next in this psalm, we see the word of God and the work of God. Back one, there we go. Cooper and I are fighting over this now because it wasn't working. Uh, Go ahead, Cooper, you you can do it. The word of God and the work of God. So first, the word of God. Look at Psalm 4. Excuse me, verse 4. Verse 4. The word of the Lord is upright. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So God's word is good, and it's right, and it's dependable, and it's true. God's word is powerful. It brings things about. He can speak things into existence, right? His word does something. It, it has action behind it. His word is powerful. We see over and over again throughout Scripture the importance and the unfailing nature of God's word. Right? Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word is truth. And isn't our world wanting for truth this day? Don't we need more truth in our culture and in our world? But we cast aside God's word, right, for our subjective ideas of what we think truth should be, right? There's no foundation there. And when we begin to question the word of God, we're in very dangerous territory. What was Satan's first temptation? Did God really say? Is his word really trustworthy? Right? Did God actually say, we need to be ready to answer that temptation? Yes, God actually said truth, right? Are you armed and ready with the truth of God's word to answer those lies and those falsehoods in our culture? 
right? God's word is your defense. So how well do you know it? How well do you know God's word? Are you growing in your understanding of it? So the word of God, second, we see the work of God. Look at verse four. All his work is done in faithfulness. So God's workings, the things that he does in this world, are all righteous and just and loving and faithful. All that God does is good. We read this in Scripture, Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 111, verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord. So God's word is true, and God's work is good. And they go hand in hand. They move in unity together. They're not against each other. God's word accomplishes God's work, right? Whatever that might be. Isaiah 55, 11 says, My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's sure. God's word goes forth and his work is accomplished. These are the two solid things we have as a foundation for our faith, right? Without God doing his work, our salvation doesn't exist, right? If Christ didn't do the work that was needed to save, we wouldn't have salvation. We'd all be headed for an eternity in hell under God's wrath. God's work did something. It accomplished something. He worked to accomplish it. But without God being faithful to his word, our salvation would be uncertain, right? If we couldn't believe God's word, we wouldn't have any certainty in our salvation. We wouldn't have any confidence in it. So these are the two things that we need. We need God's word and his work moving and working together. And these are the two things that the world rejects. That's why this world is on shaky ground. God alone saves by his word and through his work. And next we see the nature of God. The nature of God, we see some of who God is, part of his character, right? So first in this psalm, we recognize God is creator. Look at verse 6. God is creator. He made the heavens with all their hosts. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea, right? So here's God. He has created all things, all the stars, And the planets and the moons were created by God and belonged to him. He knows every star by name, right? The depths of the ocean and all that it contains are his creation. Everything in all of creation from the largest galaxy to the smallest particle in the universe are all created by God with a purpose to glorify him. These are things we read in scripture, right? Genesis 1.1. Kids, what does Genesis 1.1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Nehemiah 9.6 says, You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Proverbs 3.19, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare 
the glory of God. In Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is the creator of all things. And in creation we see that God is wise and powerful and creative and massive and all those things. We see in his creation that he is worthy of our worship. So not only is God creator, but he is also Lord. He is Lord. He is sovereign and he has all authority over all of his creation. Look at verse 13. He looks down from heaven. Verse 14, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Everything is in his sight. Psalm 119, verses 5 and 6 say this. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? God sees all. God knows all, even the hearts of men. And he is Lord of all history, over all peoples and all times. He is in control. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Isaiah 46, 10 to 11, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's purposes stand for all time. They never fail. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. What do we see here? The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. He frustrates the plans of the peoples, but the plans of his heart stand to all generations. The Lord is sovereign over all. He is Lord. He is over everyone, both nations and individuals. And both nations and individuals are therefore accountable to him. They are accountable to him because he is Lord. He is Lord, so he has ultimate authority. We see this explicitly in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Matthew Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came, said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? Jesus has all authority. He is king over all kings. And he is Lord over all lords. You think President Biden has anything over our God? Right? He might be the most powerful man on this earth, but he has no authority other than that which God has given him. He's putty in God's hands. Right? Think of Pilate. Do you remember when Jesus was on this fake trial before Pilate? Pilate said that he, Pilate, had authority to crucify Jesus, right? How did Jesus respond? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You think you have power and authority? The only power and authority you have is a gift from God. In the Gospels, we read of this. We read of Jesus' authority. Jesus taught with authority. He had authority over all flesh, authority over unclean spirits, authority to cast out demons, authority to heal every disease and affliction, authority to forgive sins, authority to execute judgment, 
authority to cast into hell, authority to lay down his life, authority to take it back up again, and authority to give eternal life. And those are the only, the only things that are explicitly stated in the Gospels. Right? God has authority. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Look again at verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. One generation after another, after another, after another. See, we right now, we know of God's past faithfulness through his word and through the testimony of those who have come before us. We now get to experience his present faithfulness working out in our lives. And we're assured of his faithfulness to come. Faithfulness to our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids. Faithfulness forevermore, even unto eternal glory. God is faithful. His counsel stands forever. The plans of his heart will last for all generations. We worship God as our creator and Lord. Next, we see the care of God. The care of God. So in this psalm, we see God's great care for his people. Verse 10, uh, excuse me, verse 12, we see a blessed nation. We see the Lord watching over all that takes place in verse 13. We see his eyes and those who fear him, verse 18. We see him protecting and providing in verse 19. Our God takes care of his people. Right? Now, of course, ultimately that's in our salvation, right? It's in saving us of our sins, saving us from eternal, uh, damnation, right, and give us eternal blessing. That's our, his ultimate care for us when we were deserving, right? God alone saves, but his salvation continues, right? It's an ongoing salvation. He doesn't just forgive and then leave us alone. He continues his word and he continues our, his work in our lives. He continues to nurture you and care for your soul. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is that good work? It's your salvation from start to finish. Right? God began it. He's continuing it. And he will finish it. God alone saves. He will do it. Your job is simply to love him and seek after him and walk in obedience to his word. Now look again, the care of God. Look again at verse 12. Here we see a national identity, right? There's a a nation, a national identity. In the Old Testament, the nation whose God was the Lord was the nation of Israel, right? They were God's people. So where do we, where is we as the United States stand in regard to this? Our nation. Are we uh, a nation following after the Lord? Oh, not, not in a lot of ways, right? We need repentance, as uh, if I remember Terry prayed before, right? That our nation would repent. That's what we need. There's no question about it. It starts with us in the church and goes forth from there. But we have to be careful here. Don't simply look at this as the United States or some other country when it talks about this nation, right? The nation is God's covenant people. Right? In the Old Testament this time, it was the nation of Israel, national identity. Right? 
but it's God's covenant people. See, in verse 12, we see that this nation was a chosen people, right? Now, they weren't chosen because of their goodness or their worth. They needed saving, just as we do. They were chosen because God chose them. That's it. God chose them, so they were a chosen people, right? National identity. Who are God's chosen covenant people today? We are. The church, right? That's us. The church. We are God's covenant people. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had a national identity as God's chosen people. Today, the church has a spiritual identity as God's chosen people, right? We have the Lord as our God. We are the nation. We are the covenant people of God. We are the blessed nation, blessedness of God's people, right? Here's the care of God. Not only that, but the Lord has chosen us, in verse 12, as his heritage, as his inheritance, as his very possession, right? We are God's. We are his very own. We are his covenant people. And because we are his, God cares for us. He cares for us in good times, and he cares for us in times of trouble, right? If you look here, you know, I said this is a very worshipful, celebratory psalm, and it is, and yet it's not without trouble. Look at verse 16, right? There is war taking place, right? In verse 19, there is famine taking place, right? So there is pain and difficulty, but the Lord cares for his people throughout, even in the midst of those things. God comes and gives himself to you and to us, even in times of trouble. Verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on us, watching, guarding, protecting, saving, providing. His eye is on those who fear him, those related rightly to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But we also have to be aware that there are false hopes. Right? Look at verse 16. There is here a great army. There is great strength. There is a war horse with great might. But those things don't save. Right? Don't look there. Don't rely on those things. They are false hopes. We see this also in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, I know that some of you have horses. Does anybody have a chariot? No, probably not, right? But let me adapt it a little bit for you, okay? Some trust in their government. Some trust in their guns. Some trust in their bank accounts. But we, as God's people, trust in the name of the Lord our God. We, didn't, we don't trust in the things of the world. We look to God. God alone saves. Now, please don't misunderstand this. Yes, we utilize things in this world. right? God has given us 
resources and we put them to use. It's not that we don't utilize the great army here. It's not that we don't utilize the chariots and the horses. But that's not where ultimately the trust is. Our trust is in the Lord. We see throughout the Old Testament especially, God can take care of those in a, in a second. He can confuse a whole army and they're killing each other, right? And not affecting God's people. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our reliance is upon him. Jesus is our king. He is our warrior. He is the one who saves. He is our help and shield of verse 20. The Lord is our good shepherd, and it's in him that we put our trust. That's why our heart can be glad in verse 21. So see God's care for his people. Don't miss it. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, 3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Sometimes people paint a picture of a mean, distant God who doesn't really care for people. Right? He might save you, but that's it. He doesn't really care about you. He could just as easily do without you. No, 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 no. God cares for his people. God blesses his people. God watches over them. So do you have faith to draw near to God and receive his blessing? Lastly, we see the response of God's people. Okay, let's take a look at the response of God. So God alone saves God saves those who entrust themselves to him, to those who have faith in him. Right? John 3.16. Kids, what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? So believe, those who believe in him. You know what that word believe means in the New Testament? It means to and trust yourself, to fully submit yourself, to place all of your confidence in him alone and not hold any back for yourself. He is your salvation. So do you entrust yourself to Jesus? Do you give all of yourself to him? Have you believed on him in his death and resurrection for your salvation? God alone saves. Now let's look in Psalm 33. There's some specific things we see here. First, we see fear uh, fear the Lord. Verse 8, and again in verse 18. Fear the Lord. This is one response we should have, right? So do you have a proper view of the awesome nature of God? Do you understand the discipline of the Lord? Or do you just not take him very seriously in your life? Verse 8. Stand in awe. Stand in awe when you hear his word. Stand in awe when you see his work. So do you have an awe towards God? Or do you focus your attention on lesser things? Third, hope in his love. Verse 18. Hope in his love. Do you have great hope in God's love for you? Do you believe he actually cares for you? Or do you doubt that God would pay you any attention? Fourth, wait for the Lord. 
Verse 20, wait for the Lord. Do you wait for him to do his work in his timing because he is Lord? Or do you plow ahead doing things your own way, trying to keep a hold of all that surrounds you? Fifth, be glad in him. Verse 21, be glad in him. Do you have joy in the Lord? Do you celebrate his goodness? Is his praise on your lips? Or are you complacent in your walk with him? Sixth, lastly, trust in his holy name. Verse 21, trust in his holy name. Do you give yourself fully to the Lord? Do you surrender your life to him in complete confidence that he will care for you and watch over you and take care of you? Or do you have to be in control and be Lord of your own life? So what characterizes your life? If someone were to observe your life for a time, would that observer say, he trusts in God, he surrenders fully to God, right? She fears God and loves him and has her hope in God alone. Or would that observer say, well, he's trusting his bank account, he's not looking to the Lord for provision, right? She's emotionally up and down. She's not patiently waiting on the Lord. So what is your life characterized by? God alone saves. Entrust yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true and right and trustworthy. Thank you that you are a faithful God in all that you do and that we can have confidence in you no matter what comes our way, even in the hard and difficult things. God, help us to have great joy in Christ. Help us to be a joyful people, to sing and worship enthusiastically because of who you are and all that you have done. Help us to understand more of yourself, that we might have more joy and more excitement for you. Thank you for the chosen, those you have called together as your covenant people. Thank you for our worship and our fellowship. God, help us to see you as Lord. Help us to give ourselves to you, to entrust ourselves to you, to seek you and fear you and wait for you and be glad in you, to trust in your holy name. God, help us to give ourselves to you more and more. And God, as we do that, would you pour out your blessings upon us, that we would see ourselves, your people, as a blessed people a blessed nation. And God, we look towards the day to come when all the struggle of this earth and this life will be gone and we will have the fullness, the completeness of our salvation with you face to face. So God, help that to be an encouragement to us by your spirit. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.